Charles Dickens, in his classic book, A Christmas Carol, says this, Marley was dead. Marley was dead to begin with. There's no doubt whatsoever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good for anything he chose to put his hand to. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. What we need to remember and what Mark wants us to understand as we begin reading in verse 40 is that Jesus, to borrow a phrase from Dickens, is as dead as a doornail. Make no mistake, Mark really, really wants us to understand that Jesus is dead. When I read, you're going to see all the references to death and dead and corpse. We need to understand that death swallowed the man from Nazareth. As Jesus was extinguished, the hopes for so many were extinguished as well. Death, no respecter of persons, even took Jesus. Death had killed Jesus. We join Mark on this Friday afternoon as the shadows lengthen and the sun falls past the horizon. Jesus is dead. He didn't just appear to die. He didn't just faint on the cross. He didn't have someone come and take his place. Jesus, the author of life, died. For all time, death meant the end. It's over. There's nothing more. And for the first time, for the first time, we see the dawning of something different. We have no hope if our Savior didn't die. Because without his death, there would be no resurrection. As Sunday morning dawned, In Mark chapter 16, there's a power stirring, an unstoppable power greater than death, a power to make death turn back on itself. And by the end of our time this morning, we're going to see the beginning of something altogether different. For the first time, new beginning starts with death. Let's read beginning in Mark chapter 15, verse 40. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of the preparation... That is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already have died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. When he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, I pray you would open our hearts and lives. Spirit, I pray you would be active amongst us. As I preach, despite my many weaknesses, 
and limitations. I pray that your word and your 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 and our Savior would be what's front and center and most clear. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Jesus is dead. Now, John, Mark really wants us to understand this. There is no new beginning and there is no hope unless Jesus is dead. So we're going to have witnesses to his death. First, we have the death witnessed. Mark is a, char- Mark is a minimalist, right? Mark, we know this. We've been going through the book of Mark now for a number of months. Mark is subtle and understated. Mark's the kind of guy that would just say a baby was born. He wouldn't tell you how much it weighed. He wouldn't tell you whether it was a girl or a boy. He would just say a baby was born. He's that kind of minimalist. And so it's striking here this morning that he would repeat himself so often. And he would repeat himself with such specificity. Look at verse 40. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And we see this. There were also women looking on from a distance among whom were who? Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. Three women to witness Jesus' death. And these three women, women watched Jesus die from a distance. And then Mary Magdalene, verse 47, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And then we'll see in verse 1 that Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might anoint him. We see Mary, Mary, and Salome. These three ladies, these three ladies were witnesses to the death of Jesus. One of the most popular retorts to the news of the resurrection of the dead was that, well, maybe he didn't die. Maybe he just appeared to die. Maybe he fainted. Maybe, maybe there, was a, there was at the last minute a twin put up on the cross instead of him. We have witnesses. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus did not just appear to die. He was really dead. He was dead as a doornail by Friday afternoon. Mark is saying, if you don't believe me, when he wrote this originally, Mary, Mary, and, and Salome were all still alive. He's saying, if you don't believe me, go talk to these ladies. Some might say, well, maybe they didn't know where he was laid. Mark says, no. Two Marys saw where he was laid, and they went back the next day. Some might say, well, maybe, he, maybe his followers just expected him to rise from the dead. Mark says, wrong again. Talk to Mary, Mary, or Salome. They took spices to anoint the body after He was dead. Go ask him. Jesus was dead as a doornail. These ladies saw Jesus die. It's important to establish this fact because if Jesus is not dead, there would be no possibility for him to rise from the dead. If he wasn't dead, there would be nothing remarkable about him being alive on Sunday morning. But he was dead. Dead as a doornail. And Mark calls another witness. As the dead get buried. Again, new beginnings are established for the very first time with death. Verse 43, we read this. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Again, Mark reports, Jesus is dead. And he gives the specifics. He says, there's a man. He doesn't say a certain man. He doesn't say some guy. He names this guy and the place where he lives. Joseph of Arimathea. He's the one who went to Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And we know that Joseph had a lot of money because the tomb that he is going to lay Jesus in is cut out of a rock, and that was very expensive. And he had a stone that would roll in front of that rock. 
Don't think like big round stone. Think like a disc that is kind of like a wheel weighing over two tons. That goes in front of the, of the tomb, and only the uber-rich could afford that. Now notice, Joseph comes and asks for the body, and Pilate doesn't say, okay, yeah, go for it. No, verse 44, Pontius Pilate, what's, what's his response? He was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Because normally when people were hung on crosses, it took them two days and sometimes three to die. Jesus was dead after six hours. And so Pilate, he does not take the word of Joseph as good enough. What he does is he calls a witness. Now he calls an expert witness. He calls a witness whose trade and is, is death. A merchant of death, you might call it. He calls the centurion who is responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. Pilate says, Mark tells us, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he, being Jesus, was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Jesus was dead. Now, if the centurion says Jesus was dead, the centurion knows. The Romans were experts in the trade of death. His job, the centurion's job, was day after day to oversee crucifixions of criminals. So if there was anyone who knew his job, it would be that individual. Just like when you start a new job, everything at the beginning seems new and strange and a little bit odd. But as you get going and as you get into a routine, you recognize that, oh, I can do this almost like second nature. Now, second death was this centurion's job. This centurion is not easily tricked. It's not as if this centurion would have had times where, you know, it, I thought he was dead, but it turns out he wasn't. Pilate doesn't say, now, are you sure that he's dead? Pilate doesn't verify that. He doesn't say, I want to see the body. He has an authority on death standing in front of him, this centurion. Pilate knew this man, and he knew, his, and he knew this man knew his trade. And so if the centurion says Jesus was dead, he was as dead as a doornail. And it had to be that way. It had to be that way. There is no hope. There is no new beginning unless Jesus met his end like this. Christian teaching is centered not on the, the, the teaching of Christ, but on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus were not dead that Friday afternoon we would have no reason to follow him. We would have no reason to pay attention to him. He would just be one of a long line of holy people who met an untimely death by jealous authorities. But that's not our story. That's not our story. Our story is of a, of a new beginning. For the very first time, we read beginning in Mark chapter 16, that death led to new beginnings and not finality. Look at Mark 16. I'll read down to verse 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, 
they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled the tomb from the tomb. For trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now that is where the book of Mark ends. Now most of you, probably all of you, have verses 9 through 20 now listed after that. Why is that? The oldest and best copies of the Bible do not include verses 9 through 20. And so why is this in our Bibles? Well, in 16... This is a little lesson that we'll have, and then we'll get back to Mark. In 1611, when the King James was translated, they didn't have as good a copies as we do now. And in the 400 years since the KJV, we've found older and more reliable manuscripts that show that, that verses 9 through 20 ought not to be included. And if you look close, you'll notice that 9 through 20, and you can do this on your own time, is an entirely different writing style than Mark has. And 100% of biblical scholars agree that 9 through 20 should not be there. It's not authentic. So what happened? Well, <laughs> some well-meaning scribe looked at the end of Mark, and you, you read this, think about this as the end. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Ta-da! That doesn't sound very exciting. But this is classic Mark. This is how Mark would end it. Mark starts the gospel. Remember how Mark starts the gospel? He's abrupt. He's, he's He's not like Matthew, who has a genealogy. He's not like Luke, who has this fancy prologue. He's not like... or John, who has a fancy prologue, or Luke, who has this intricate purpose statement. We have this from Mark, the beginning of the gospel, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So it makes sense that Mark would end in verse 8 and go, mic drop, I'm out. You need to recognize Jesus is who he said he is. And that's what happens here. The ladies, they go to the tomb. These same ladies, Mary, Mary, and Salome, they go to the tomb expecting to find a dead Jesus. That's why they brought the spices. They bring spices. Now, they would have brought spices that weighed up to 100 pounds, 80 to 100 pounds. So this was definitely a three-person job. They go to the tomb, and on the way, it dawns on them, hey, there's a two-ton rock in front of the tomb. How are we going to move that? I'm not sure. That is not part of their plan. It shows how disoriented they are. They're not thinking clearly. They're wondering about how they're going to do something as basic as that. They didn't think about how they could anoint his body if his body was encased and entombed behind a two-ton rock. But those things and those considerations flitted away once they walked up. Look at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And so, for me, I'd just stand in the back. I'd stand outside the tomb and say, wow, I wonder what happened. 
These ladies are the brave ones. They're the one watching Jesus dying. They're the ones following him to his tomb. And so verse 5, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. You think? They're expecting to see a dead person, and they see somebody dressed like he's going to a wedding, and probably really shiny. And they're scared. Don't you think? What, that would be the shock of their lives. And then the angel, he says, do not be alarmed. Makes me laugh every time. Angels don't recognize how they are alarming to us. And here he says, don't be alarmed. Easy for you to say. And he says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, who was dead. He is risen. He is not here. He who was crucified is alive. Mark doesn't even tell us that this young man is an angel, but that's, we know who that is. We know it's an angel. But then listen to the message that the angel gives to the ladies to send on to the disciples. Verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Now, he told his disciples way back in Mark chapter 14, verse 28, that he was going to go ahead of them to Galilee after he rose from the dead. Now, again, remember the disciples were dense and they didn't get it. They didn't understand. After the, the Passover meal that they celebrated and they walked toward Gethsemane, Jesus says in Mark chapter 14, verse 27, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 28, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is before everything had happened. Before all the chaos. Before all the tumult. Before his disciples promised to stand by him. Before they went to the garden. Before Jesus asked his disciples to watch and pray three times and yet they kept falling asleep. Before he was betrayed and arrested. Before all of his disciples ran from him. Before Peter said, they all might fall away, but I will walk with you and I will walk to your death. And then Peter verbally betrayed Jesus by denying him three times. Before all that, Jesus says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus was utterly alone in his time of need. And now he's back. Have you ever trusted someone? Have you ever looked to someone to help? And in your time of need, not only do they run away, they act as if they don't know you and run away. They betray you. I would expect the message to be something like from the angel, hey, you go tell that group of worthless cowards, I'm back and I'm coming. Or something like, you tell those losers, you better keep running because if I find you, then insert favorite threat. <laughs> but that's not what Jesus did at all. Go tell the disciples and Peter. How different Jesus is from me and you. Peter had forcefully denied Jesus 
three times and called curses down upon himself. And yet, here we have a message from Jesus that he wanted to see and see Peter again. He wanted Peter back. This tells you all you really need to know about Jesus. He loved Peter despite his failure. He wants Peter back. He loves Peter despite Peter's actions. He wants Peter not to punish or admonish or to lecture, but to reaffirm his love. That is unexpected. That is shocking. That is the beginning of the new beginning after Jesus rose from the dead. You see, up to this day, death always won. No one ever escaped death. Wealth could not ward off the grim reaper. Fame could not erase mortality. Altruism was no ticket to immortality. Death had always muffled every song, stilled every pulse. Death had stifled every happy ending and wilted every hope and snuffed out every life. And until this point, death was always the end. Then Jesus and death meet. And death has never been the same. Death began to cave in on itself. The power of God overwhelmed the power of death. And because of that, Jesus can say, I'm back, Peter, and the other ten, and I want you back. I'm back, and I want you back. You see, that's a message of Love and grace and forgiveness. What kind of hope would we have if our leader spoke messages of love and grace and forgiveness and yet our leader was dead? I mean, we could look back and maybe have some advice to apply or look at some examples that we can maybe enrich our lives by, but there would be nothing for us to count on, nothing for us to build our lives upon. But because Jesus died and rose again, we have a strong message of new beginnings. These new beginnings now are things that we can trust. We have coming forth from Jesus Christ and his his empty tomb the good news that he loves us, that he shows grace to us, and that he forgives our every sin. He promised that he would see them again in Galilee before they ran away. Same is true for us. Read the scriptures. If you're a Christian, he promises that one day we will be with him. We will be where he is with his Father. He promises that despite our many failures. What love? What love? Look at this. This is the beginning of an eternal unbounded love for the followers of Jesus. Jesus loved Peter and the rest despite their actions, even life-defining failure. What can we see? We can see that your failure does not disqualify you from his love. There is no one who loves like Jesus, not one. Our Savior's unwavering disposition toward his people, toward you if you're a Christian, is love no matter our failures, even through our failures, even knowing that we will fail. That's part of our new beginning. He loved greatly and he loves greatly. If he was still dead, what good would his love be? 
but he's not. And we can be confident of better things. He is alive. And if he can want Peter back after what he did, he's never going to send you away. Think of that. Maybe some of you here, like Peter, look back with regret over a season of your life, a time in your life, where you just blew it. And you think there's no way, there's no way he can accept me or want me back. False. Whatever you did, as significant as it was, I guarantee it wasn't standing in the courtyard of the high priest telling a little slave girl that, no, you don't know this Jesus. No, you don't know him. And then a third time, no, and bring curses down upon yourself. And if Jesus can see Peter and say, I love him despite his actions, that's a love I can get behind. That's a love that stands for a new beginning. That's a love, if you're a Christian, that he loves you with. And because he lives, his love is forever. The end of death means love forever. The end of death also means grace. What is grace? That means God, because of Christ's sacrifice, does not treat us as our sins deserve. He gives us favor (coughs) because the Son died and took our place and rose again. Jesus took our disgrace upon him, upon himself, so we could receive grace from him. See, religion, a lot of traditions, you might have grown up in a religious tradition that says you need to be good enough, obey well enough, and therefore God will be pleased. That's not true. That's not true. None of us can obey well enough. What is true? What is true is Jesus Christ died to take the place of sinners like me. And because he died and lives, we can say along with Sibs, with great confidence, there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Because he is alive, we can be confident that he will always be gracious towards his people. And because he is alive, it is a day of new beginnings. He loves forever, and he extends grace and favor forever. We have love, we have grace, (coughs) we have forgiveness. (coughs) You see, God did not merely choose to look the way, to look the other way from our past and future and present sins. He doesn't just sweep them under the rug and move on. No, Jesus died. We, We went, Mark wanted us to make sure we understood, he died. The Lord counted out our many sins and put them one by one on his head. And Jesus paid the price for them all. Our forgiveness is sure, not because we were sorry enough, not because we we asked just the right things or prayed just the right prayer. Our forgiveness is sure because Jesus died and paid the price for us. And because he is alive, we can be confident in our forgiveness. His death led to to a new beginning for us. His resurrection proves that his payment for our sin has been fully accepted by God. What love, what grace, what forgiveness. 
If you're a Christian, those are the beginnings of what we have here. Without his death and resurrection, we have nothing. If Jesus did not die, we do not have this love. We do not have this grace. We do not have this forgiveness. But Jesus did die and he did rise so that we might be able to know he will never abandon us. No matter what we do and who we are, a deep and unstoppable power has been unleashed when Christ was risen. This is a power greater than death, a power able to turn death back on itself. So now we will never have to pay, to pay the price for our many sins. If you're a Christian, you will not face death. In fact, death has been redefined. No longer does it mean eternal punishment apart from God. For Christians, you know what it means? A transition from this life to the next. There is no punishment left for us. And death, because Christ died and rose again, does not mean the end. It means new beginning. It means... We go from living in this life, in the shadowlands, to being with Jesus and seeing Jesus and being like Jesus. Death is no longer a threat to us. That's why we Christians at funerals have hope. <clears throat> Yesterday, a longtime member of our church, Tony Amadeo, decades-long member, was laid to rest. And it was sad because we're not going to see Tony. But what's not sad is that we have confidence in where he is. We have confidence that death has been redefined for him. Because Jesus died and rose again, and he has, he's offered new beginnings. Now Tony, though his body ceased to function, though he died physically, he is alive with Jesus. Amen. That's right, amen. And we will too. We will too. This is, this kind of hope, this kind of sturdy foundation to build your life on, that's something that you can't find anywhere else. This is Jesus. Jesus, as we, as we go through Mark, we have now the hope of a new beginning. The definition of death has changed. I hope throughout this book, you see Jesus is worth following. There is no one like this Jesus. Someone who would willingly go to the cross even though the night before, the night he's arrested, he says, is there any way for me to do this another way? But not my will, but your will be done. There is no one like Jesus who willingly took upon himself the curse of sin so that we might have the blessing of God individually and corporately. This means that your every wrong, he decided, I will take that away from him. I will take that away from her and I will put it on me. There is no one like this Jesus. Jesus is worth following. He knows you and he loves you. You know, sometimes we can be afraid that if we were really known, we wouldn't be really loved. That's not the way it is with Jesus. He knows us at our worst and loves nonetheless. If you're here and you're not a believer, 
you don't follow Jesus, talk to someone who you know is a Christian who does. Ask them, why is Jesus worth following? As we close, we'll have people here who can pray for you and talk to you. Tell you about Jesus, introduce you to some Christians. As believers, we see Jesus dying in our place. Loving us though we turned our back on him. And we say, you're worth it. You're worth it, Jesus. You're worth it. Jesus himself promised that the love of some will grow cold. Even leaders fall away. We've seen that in recent days. But follow Jesus. He's worth following. He's worth it. Life is difficult, but Jesus is worth following. He's worth following. Look at this. Notice the faith everybody expressed in Mark chapter 40, verse through 16, chapter 8. What kind of faith did the women have? None. Their faith was that he was dead. Pilate had non-existent faith. The centurion, he made the confession last week, but he didn't have faith in anything. The disciples, they're nowhere to be seen. They don't even make an appearance here. Nobody's standing vigil saying, I believe the Lord and his word, and I believe that he will be coming back. That's not how it goes. Nobody was fasting and praying while Jesus was in the tomb. But Jesus emerged nonetheless. What does this tell us? Ours is a story not of human faith, but of God's power. We will never have the faith we ought to have, but we do have the Savior we don't deserve. The story of Jesus is a story of the power of God. We could not save ourselves. We would never save ourselves. Jesus did it for us. Keep following him. Jesus, he was dead as a doornail, but he's dead no more. And it's a day of new beginnings. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for being alive. Thank you that when I close my eyes and pray <coughs> and talk into the air, I'm not, my words do not fall to the ground. I have access to the Father because of what you've done. You're alive. We can't see you, but we know you're alive. We all look forward to the day, those of us here who are Christians, when we will see you and be like you. When the troubles and trials of this life, the toils and snares that we face on a daily basis will fall away, (coughs) we look forward to that day. But today we look back in faith and recognize, Jesus, that we have a hope and we have a day of new beginnings because you died and we're without hope. You died so that we might be able to experience a life full of new beginnings that you might give us love and grace and forgiveness because you did not experience the love of God or or mercy from God or, or, or rest as you hung on the cross. You were treated as my sins deserved and for that you took our place and for that you died. Thank you for dying. And thank you for rising. 
I pray that we would be a people who follow you no matter what. No matter how the winds of culture blow or change, no matter how our circumstances bend or flex, no matter what goes on, Lord, I pray that we would be a people who keep putting one foot in front of the other following you because you're worth it and you're alive. We're weak. Help us, Lord, to have the perspective and remember that you love us and you're alive and that love is still active, that you've extended grace to us and because you're alive, that grace is never-ending. You've forgiven us and because you're alive, our forgiveness is forever. Thank you, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we stand in this life and that we pray. Amen.